Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking Nobel Prizes and Ig Nobel Prizes. That's right, the ones with all the honour, and then the ones where the recipients wear toilet seats on their head. We're going to be talking a lot about that today, coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us today as we move into an hour of science. Uh, Thanks very much to Irish Voice for that fantastic show beforehand with some... uh Irish movie music, which was awesome. We were uh, rocking along to that uh, beautiful song from Once at the End there. Um, although I don't know if rocking along is quite the right uh, way to describe it, but we were certainly enjoying it and uh, hopefully enjoying the science with us today, uh, you listeners. And also joining me in the studio is Kate. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, Brad. How are you? Um, I'm going well, thank you. And uh, Excited to have you on board today because uh, today we're talking about uh, we're going to talk about two different types of things. We're talking about some of the biggest prizes in science uh, because there uh, there aren't many prizes in science, but uh, this is one of them. It's the Nobel prizes, uh, which have just been awarded uh, in the chemistry, physics, and uh, medicine and physiology areas of science, but also the Ig Nobel prizes as well. Uh, which are very different sorts of prizes uh, indeed and they are basically awarded to science that uh, is slightly absurd uh, slightly out there you might think why the heck are they doing that but the idea is it makes you laugh and then makes you think about it and uh, if you're looking on our Facebook page earlier today you may have seen a video of a chicken walking and then a chicken walking with a wooden stick attached to its rear end and uh, I hopefully that made you laugh and then made you think Broderick why are you posting videos like that uh, but we'll get into the research behind that and why that's interesting a little bit later on and uh, Kate's got a very uh, I've been talking to one of her uh, friends and relatives who's been involved in the Ig Nobel Prizes, so I'm looking forward to hearing about that, Kate. Uh, But for now, let's jump straight in and talk about the Nobel Prize in Chemistry this year. Uh, The 2015 prize was awarded to uh, British scientists and uh, American scientists as well. Thomas Lindahl of the Francis Crick Institute and Clare Hall Laboratory in Britain, Uh, Paul Modrick of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and Duke University School of Medicine, and Aziz Sankar of the University of North Carolina. And uh, these guys in the Nobel Prize of Chemistry were awarded work for looking at DNA repair, uh, which is huge because it could lead to therapies for everything from uh, cancer to old age, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, they were doing research in a lot of different areas, and interestingly, Lindahl uh, this, uh, was looking at uh, uh, changes that happen in our DNA, um, and there's a lot of uh, DNA changes that happen. Uh, our DNA is in our body, um, and it, it contains a whole lot of information, but it's been copied over and over again. Um, and in fact, there's enough DNA in our body to travel to the sun and back some 250 times if you stretch it all out. That's a that's a long way, bro. That's a, like I, I can't imagine how much how far that is. Yeah, like, it's it's huge. It's massive, and I mean to think it's all enraveled in your body, um, just holding that information there. Uh, but when you're copying something like that, kind of like the uh, the monks copying out the scriptures, occasionally there's mistakes made, and then if you make a mistake, this can be copied on and copied on, and 
sometimes mistakes are a good thing, sometimes mistakes are a bad thing. Uh, in fact, you know, evolution of a species requires on these random mutations happening, and some of them are harmless and don't even know. Some of them cause a noticeable result that's good, and some that's not so good. And, uh, you know, if it's a good result, then generally that gets passed on and passed down to generations, and that's how people and creatures evolve. Uh, now, Lindell, uh, one of the scientists, uh, demonstrated that these changes happen so often that they should actually be devastating to humans. Like, there's the multiple potentially dangerous breakdowns of the genome happening every day in our bodies, which is huge when we think about how much is being copied. Um, and such a rate of decay of the DNA and what's going on should never have allowed uh, humans to exist like we do, should never have allowed life to exist like it does. But... Lindahl discovered base excision repair, which is a mechanism uh, by which certain proteins work to c constantly be repairing DNA. So there's these little repair systems that happen in our body. Um, Sankar, one of the other scientists who was awarded the Nobel Prize, looked at the mechanisms by which proteins repair ultraviolet damage. So this is damage caused by ultraviolet light, most often from the sun, um, based around skin cancer, which can be one of the uh, the big uh, things that cause DNA mutations uh, in, in uh, causing cancer and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, this was called nucleotide excision repair. Um, and then Modric... Uh, focused on mismatch repair, which is a mechanism by which errors during cell division, uh, and again, this is a constant process in our body, uh, those errors are corrected uh, every time. And so it's really interesting uh, to see all this because of, of the effects, you know, once we understand how these mechanisms occur that are repairing the issues in DNA, we can start looking at things like cancer, uh, because cancer is, of course, formed by uh, mutations in our DNA, happening in a lot of different ways, um, and, and certainly uh, mutated DNA is one of the big causes uh, and also looking at things like old age as we get older these repair mechanisms uh, be don't work so well and so how can we improve them into the future maybe I can live forever maybe maybe that's right there's a, there's a huge amount of application for this amazing research in chemistry so really exciting stuff the other thing I find quite interesting too is that um there isn't a Nobel Prize in, in biology. Um, and so this is, this is really kind of breaking those, those boundaries between biology and chemistry, uh, which is interesting to see because, you know, science we tend to put into such defined areas. Uh, but, of course, now uh, the way we work is, is across all these different areas um, to get, you know, biochemistry and chemical biology. And um, one of my favourites is astrobiology. Ooh, what's, <laughs> what's astrobiology? <laughs> That's looking at life on... Uh, in space and uh, some of the, the organisms that can survive out there and that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, an amazing discovery here in the chemistry world looking at uh, DNA repair and how that's going on. But we're going to transition from the chemical, uh, the Nobel world of chemistry to the Ig Nobel world of chemistry uh, where, Kate, I believe uh, you've been talking to one of the researchers who was awarded the Ig Nobel Prize in chemistry for their work. Yeah, I have. So... Um Back home in Western Australia, uh, I've got a friend and a, well, my second cousin, uh, Callum Ormond from the University of Western Australia, was part of a team who worked on, well, the way it's being uh, published at the moment in the news media is that they unboiled an egg. It was a little bit more complicated than that. They were, <laughs> they were looking at how proteins 
uh, can be refolded back to their original state. So the way they did that was through uh, unboiling egg white. Right, because, you know, eggs typically are given as that example of the irreversible change. You know, when you learn science at high school, you look, look at reversible changes where you can take a reaction one way and then push it back the other and go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Um, but boiling an egg was always considered irreversible because you've done... you've denatured those proteins and it's stuck in its boiled form. Yeah, they, um, what, so what they've done is that they've used a, a, we'll call it a machine, it's called the Vortex Fluid Device and what that basically means is it's a really skinny tube that they put uh, a liquid in and then they spin it around over 5,000 times uh, a minute right. and that will uh, thin out all those fluids and the proteins that are then um, in that. Uh, into a really thin layer, which lets them pull it apart and then gently those proteins can refold back to the way they want. And most of the time, like 90% of the time, that's the way they originally were. Okay. So what they did was they dissolved some uh, boiled egg in a solution and then they put it through this process and went, oh, okay, so we've unboiled an egg. What can we do with this? So that's, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Um, so, so, that's so they're able to separate it out such that they're separating out the different proteins but not actually breaking the proteins down at all. Yeah, so the the Vortex fluid device is strong enough to pull the proteins out so that they're all separate from each other, but gentle enough that it can let things relax back to the way they want, kind of like untangling a necklace, yeah. pulling it all out in a straight line, being like, and now it can just go back in the box. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. No, that's really interesting because, um, you know, it's it's kind of considered a chemical change when you start denaturing those proteins and uh, making them into the egg white, but now they're using physical force to bring it back. Yeah, they're saying it's the first time that they've been able to use mechanical energy to uh, fold and unfold proteins in this way, which is really cool because that's how our cells do it. So mm. our cells use mechanical energy to fold and unfold proteins within themselves. So the fact that we can do this in a lab has a whole bunch of um, different applications in terms of things like cancer treatments and, and um, different types of medications going forward and also to do with vaccines and vaccinations, which is actually what Callum's going to be looking into next. Oh, so, awesome. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really that side of this research that makes you laugh, you know, unboiling an egg and then makes you think, hold on a minute, that's really applicable to what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's great because um, it is a really good example of a team effort because this wasn't just Australian scientists who did this. They did it uh, over in America as well. Uh, a guy called Tom Yan from the University of California, California in Irvine um, was the, the other lead author on the paper. And he's apparently this really brilliant guy who just doesn't like talking to the media and kind of getting <laughs> forgotten in all of this. But, but yeah, it's, it's a really good example of where people can come together and do something really cool that sounds really interesting. Yeah. And... Uh, and yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome. And uh, Callum attended the awards ceremony over in... Uh, it's in the US, isn't it? Yeah, it's at Harvard. Right. And uh, I've heard it's a bit of a different awards ceremony. Yeah. Um, he's, he's posted some photos on, on Facebook of, of the different antics that different... Uh, different recipients got up to so uh, I quite enjoyed the, the selfie with the what appears to be somewhat partially clothed guy in the background <laughs> right yeah uh, but but he said it was it was a really interesting experience because it's they're being presented these awards by Nobel Prize winners for this research I mean for him this is his first published paper yeah and it's gone to this huge extent it's so, gone you know, gone viral so to speak so to speak <laughs> Yeah, but I think that is the amazing thing about these awards is that they've been going for uh, quite a few years now, um, but they are attended by Nobel laureates, um, people who've won 
uh, amazing uh, accolades for their work uh, because they, I think they recognise that uh, this is an important part of, of science here, looking at things in a funny and a different way uh, to, to really have true effects. Yeah, just because something isn't this sort of groundbreaking, amazing Nobel Prize worthy, worthy thing doesn't mean that it's not incredibly important when it comes to discovery and what we can do going forward in, in a bunch of different fields. So. That's right. And in fact, there are people who are winners of Nobel and Ig Nobel Prizes as well, which is kind of amazing that, uh, you know, you can uh, win a prize for amazing research and then also win a prize of uh, win a prize for research that's a bit quirky yeah, uh, yeah Colin Raston who, Professor Colin Raston from Flinders University who was originally at UWA when all this research was being done uh, he said that you know he would like a Nobel Prize, but for now, an egg will do. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah no, it's fair enough. No, one of the interesting, uh, one of the first winners of both a Nobel and an egg Nobel was um, Sir Andre Konstantin Geim, who's a, a Soviet-born Dutch-British physicist, and uh, he won a Nobel Prize in physics in 2010 for his work on graphene, um, which is uh, sheets of carbon put together. Was that the sticky tape? Um using sticky tape to make thin layers? I'm not sure if it was him, but that's certainly part of yeah. graphene research where they've basically coloured in with a, 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 a graphite pencil um, and then taken layers off the paper using sticky tape and that's a, a thin layer of graphene. Um, but yeah, he won the 2010 Nobel Prize in Physics for his research on graphene and then received, uh, but previously had received an Ig Nobel Prize in 2000 uh, for using the magnetic properties of water to levitate a small frog with magnets. Of course, because yeah. that's what you want to do with magnets and a small frog. <laughs> yeah, and, um, oh, and I thought there were multiple recipients, but I've just read that this makes him the first and only person to receive the... Um, both the prestigious and the tongue-in-cheek award. Well, there you go, Callum. That's that's a challenge for you now. You've, yeah. you've got your Ig. You need your you well, need your Nobel now. That's right. He, it took him ten years to move up from the Ig Nobel to the Nobel Prize. So we we can only <laughs> hope and see what happens. Um, the other thing we should also tell Callum is that uh, to win a Nobel Prize, you can come and talk on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, we interviewed Brian Schmidt a couple of years before he was awarded his Nobel Prize in physics. So, you know, we, we might get him on board one day. Yeah, I'll let him know. I'll let him know. <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah, some amazing research there. And... Um Look, there's a whole range of different uh, Ig Nobel Prizes that are awarded. We'll get through a few more. Um, but before we go to a song, I thought I might uh, talk about that video that we posted on Facebook of the chickens walking a bit strangely, a bit funnily uh, on uh, on YouTube. And this was some research that came out of Chile. Uh, in, And they were awarded the Ig Nobel Prize in biology, uh, these Chilean scientists who found that sticking a plunger to a chicken's butt made it walk like a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> Why not? Why it makes not? sense. Like, uh, and so I think they they were simply re uh, aligning the chicken centre of gravity, uh, and of course, birds, as was highlighted in the latest Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World, birds are our modern day equivalent of um, dinosaurs. And so they were working with these chickens to show that, yes, when they put some weight on their rear end, that kind of makes them come up a little bit and walk more like dinosaurs. 
The best part, of course, being that when these Chilean researchers uh, were accepting their award, they gave a demonstration of this by walking like a chicken, then attaching a stick to their rear end and walking like a dinosaur. Why can I now see children everywhere attaching plungers to their butts? <laughs> exactly. What are you doing, son? I'm being a dinosaur, Daddy. <laughs> of course you are. Of course, of course. you are. <laughs> Well, we've got more Nobel and Ig Nobel Prizes coming up and uh, we'll have plenty more today. But for now, let's have a little bit of a break with some music. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. And that was Dan Sultan there covering Southern Sun beautiful little song and it's a beautiful sunny day out there at the moment uh what is it oh don't tell me my little my little uh they normally have a little temperature gauge up here it's supposed to hit 22 today it's supposed to hit 22 i think it's it's we're getting back into a little bit more chill but uh still beautiful sunny spring weather outside uh and uh hopefully uh, you're outside wherever you're listening to us on uh, on 98.3 fm kate and broderick here doing fuzzy logic which is uh an hour's worth of science and today we're talking about the ig nobel and the nobel prizes and uh, i think it's time to make our way to another nobel prize and we're going to look at the nobel prize in physics uh which this year has been awarded to a japanese and canadian scientist takaki kajita and uh, arthur b mcdonald for their work in solving the solar neutrino problem now i didn't know this was a problem no, until i was not aware <laughs> i was not aware uh, but it's basically the fact that the sun the scientists thought the sun was dying um so very early on, in, and when we were looking at the, the sun in terms of science in the, the mid-1960s, uh, it was theorised that the sun was powered by nuclear reactions in its core, and these produced neutrino particles. Uh, now, what's a neutrino? Uh, well, it's a, a neutral subatomic particle uh, with a mass uh, close to zero and uh, incredibly unreactive. Uh, so uh, really hard to detect something that doesn't weigh much and doesn't react with anything. Um, but uh, two American physicists in the mid-1960s, uh, Raymond Davis Jr. and John Bacall, uh, decided to take on the challenge and uh, set up a neutrino detector, uh, which was basically a cylindrical tank, six metres in diameter, 14 and a half metres long, and uh, contained 455,000 litres of tetrachloroethylene, uh, which is uh, an organic chemical, and... Uh, basically dry cleaning fluid. Um, and what they knew that was that if a neutrino interacted with a specific isotope of chlorine uh, found in this cleaning fluid, then it would transform into radioactive argon. Uh, so they were going to set the tank up and basically leave it for a while and see how much argon built up in there over time. So they left it for a month or two, uh, collected the argon and measured its radioactivity to work out how much had been created. Now, on one hand, their experiment was a triumph because they detected neutrinos. Yay! Uh, but the number of neutrinos they detected was only about one-third of what they'd expected. Uh-oh. And that was a bit of a worry because, uh, basically, they were expecting to catch a lot more, which meant that the sun's activity was a lot less than they thought. Uh, because it takes many hundreds of thousands of years for the energy generated in the core of the sun to find its way for the surface and then fly to the earth, but the neutrinos that are generated come out straight away. So the neutrinos are kind of like, this is what's happening in the middle, this is giving our signal, um, but what we see on the surface is... Uh, 
is a bit different. Uh, and so they thought that this clear difference in the two rates between what they were seeing from the core and what they were seeing on the surface was that uh, the sun's nuclear reactors had dropped to just one third of their former levels and potentially the sun was dying. Oh dear. And uh, yes, so we were thinking that uh, the Earth was going to suffer a premature freezing death in a few hundred thousand years, not too soon, but reasonably soon. Uh, but what they found was um, what the the hypotheses then were. Well, well, maybe maybe we're just not picking up all the neutrinos. Oh, and and maybe that's what's going wrong. And in fact, that's what Kajita and McDonald were awarded their Nobel Prize for was using advanced neutrino detectors in both Japan and Canada, and working out that some neutrinos actually change form as they come down, and they start to take on a little bit of a small mass. Um, and so they found that uh, the neutrinos coming from the sun were actually oscillating between three different states, um, only one of which was detected by Bacall and Davis's experiment, hence the one-third the level they were expecting. And so they found these other two states of neutrinos and uh, saved the world. Well, they didn't save the world from an icy death, but they, they've, they've said that we could we'll probably be around a bit longer than, uh, than we were necessarily expecting. They've given us a bit of hope. That's Give right, hope. that's right. So, you know, a fantastically interesting discovery there um, happening in two different parts of the world to, to prove that uh, we uh, are going to be around a little bit longer. But uh, if we move on to the Ig Nobel Prize in Physics, uh, we might see that it's, well, it's all about we. <laughs> and and uh, basically, they've uh, found that there's a biological principle. So scientists from USA and Taiwan, um, Patricia Yang and David Hugh, found that nearly all mammals empty their bladders in about 21 seconds, plus or minus 13 seconds. So if you've ever watched uh, an animal pee, I don't know how often you do this, but apparently uh, they've found that if you count how long it takes these animals to empty their bladders, uh, it takes about 21 seconds for all mammals weighing more than three kilos. Yeah. Uh, so not too tiny, not too big. I don't quite know why this is in the physics section, though. Ah, uh, I do. You do? Okay. So uh, there's a principle in physics called flow rate. So it's about how fast or slowly you're moving fluids through a spe uh, specific space. Okay. And that's what they were testing, was more to do with the rate of pee rather than necessarily the amount of pee ah. that they were, they were urinating out. So right. it's got to do with the size of the animal and the size of their bladder and... That, that kind of thing mm. uh, as to exactly why they pee within 21 to or 21 seconds give Plus, or take 13 seconds yeah. <laughs> okay well that, that makes sense then okay so with little animals they have a, a small amount of urine um, but it, and it drips out slowly or Re relatively slowly, whereas things like a, a giant panda or... A giant panda has a bigger urinary tract that can therefore pee out more pee at a faster rate, faster but rate. it's roughly the same time yeah. between all of them. So I think the advice we should take from this is if you see a rather large animal peeing, um, it's going to be coming out pretty quick and you should take a step back. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> the splashback is not something you want to be anywhere near. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. I, I don't think I'd be wanting to get anywhere near that. Um, I think, think I'm good. I think I'm good on this side of the fence. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's have a look at some other strange... While we're on the body and animals, uh, the Ig Nobel Prize for Physiology and Entomology uh, was also awarded, and this was given to two individuals. Uh, 
Justin Schmidt, who's from uh, North America, who created the Schmidt Sting Pain Index, which rates the relative pain people feel when stung by various insects. Now, how would you test how it feels when stung by various insects, Kate? Oh, oh, I don't know. Maybe get stung by a bunch of insects? That's basically what he did. Um, he got uh, stung by a range, huge range of insects. Uh, the... Uh, bee sting uh, and put together a scale of from one to four uh the bee sting is the one mm. uh and bullant is at the four right duly noted stay yeah. away from bullants <laughs> yeah i mean just just about why you put yourself through that i don't know but uh but there is now the schmidt index of the schmidt sting pain index uh so they are uh, back you know, in you know what if that's what you want to do with your day then that's what you're going to do with your day. Well, that's right. Or you could be like uh, Michael Smith, uh, the Dutch scientist working in the, the U- U- uh, USA, who did, didn't did develop a pain index for different insects, but developed a different pain index for your body. Uh, so had um, honeybees sting him repeatedly on 25 different locations on his body. Uh, to learn which locations are the least painful and the most painful. Well, I, I, I guess that means he probably doesn't have a bee allergy, but, um, you know, it, what, what kinds of places was he determined to get stung to judge, to judge this? Right? Yeah, well, it was five stings a day for 38 days, um, all over the body, and I mean all over the body. Um, so the least painful parts were found to be the skull, which kind of makes sense. There's not much on your skull, um, so the skull. The middle toe tip. Okay, sure, yeah, sure why not? <laughs> and the upper arm. Okay, yeah, I suppose that, that makes sense. That's where we get our injections. That's right, things, so, so that, that, makes, that sense. makes sense too. And it's, uh, yeah, there's not many nerve endings there because, you know, we're getting hit there all the time. The most painful areas were the nostril. Yeah, I can imagine that. That, that, that would yeah, hurt. That would yeah. hurt. Uh, the upper lip. Yeah, again, I can I can totally see that. That's... And uh, and the shaft of his penis. I, I can't comment on that. No, one, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I I don't know. Look, I feel like you put limits on it, but apparently Michael Smith decided no, no limits for science. For science. For science. So yeah, but five stings a day for thirty eight days. That's quite a lot of stings. Is that a difference? Like one sting on five different parts of him, or I, that's yeah. yeah. Yeah, so apparently he captured bees on his body and sort of pressed them against various parts until they stung 190 times. Okay. To get again, to, to get the research. If that's what you want to do with your day. But then again, I suppose Nobel prizes have been awarded for people who've fed themselves horrible things and Well, and exactly. So so. Um the the Nobel prize awarded to the Australian uh Barry Marshall. Barry Marshall. Thank you. He's at UWA. Of course I know oh, this. <laughs> yes, of course being a Perthican. Um yeah, Barry Marshall swallowed his uh, bacteria uh, to prove that stomach ulcers were made by a bacteria not by whatever we thought not by human stresses yeah yeah so quite interesting there so look it can go one of two ways (laughs) it really can with a Nobel or an Ig Nobel I feel like getting stung by things is probably not going to get you a Nobel Prize but getting an Ig that's that's probably not so bad yeah but you know there's lots of different applications out there Um, and the the Ig Nobel this year for diagnostic medicine uh, while we're in the the medical world uh, was awarded to scientists at Oxford University um and uh, these guys did uh, <laughs> some great work where they basically just 
worked out how severe appendicitis was in a patient by driving over speed humps. <laughs> I suppose that's an important thing to know if you have appendicitis and are trying to go to the hospital? Well, that's basically it, yeah. So what they were doing was they were asking patients if their pain worsened when going over speed humps on their way to the hospital. Uh, so that can help the doctors in a diagnosis. Um, and it, it turned out basically assessing whether they do have appendicitis or not and it was as good as many other ways of assessing people with suspected appendicitis so a fantastic simple application um and probably something people run into quite frequently when driving to the hospital if they're freaking out about having appendicitis or or something else that's right that's right so uh you know a great little application there All right, we're going to come back with the final Nobel Prize in Science, the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology. No, we did that. No, we did physics, didn't we? We We're going to do medicine and physiology after the break. I'm going to get my notes together, but we're going to have a little bit of a song now. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XXFM 98.3 Community Radio here in Canberra, People Powered Radio. And uh, today on Fuzzy, it's Broderick and Kate in the studio, and we are talking about the Nobel and Ig Nobel Prizes. The ones with all the glory and the ones with all the absurdity. And uh, it's been quite interesting uh, comparing the, uh, <laughs> the the two today, I think. Um, some that uh, certainly made us think. Mm, uh, yeah, definitely think. <laughs> but the final uh, scientific Nobel Prize that we have to cover is, of course, the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology, uh, which this year was awarded to three scientists. I actually learnt doing research for the story that there's a maximum of three people that can be awarded a Nobel Prize in any one year. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so if... Uh, if you discover something with a group of four, you better make sure you're in the uh, top three of that group. Make, make sure you're one of the first three authors, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, but this year, uh, the discoveries were kind of for two um, separate but related groups. Uh, so uh, scientists from Ireland and Japan who are working together and uh, scientists from China uh, who... Uh, both groups had discoveries that helped doctors fight malaria and infections caused by roundworm parasites. Uh, one of my favourites here is the the Chinese uh, winner uh, for two reasons. Uh, well, no, for for one main reason was that it was uh, part of a military project during China's Cultural Revolution, um, and the second reason being that it was found using traditional Chinese medicine. That is cool. Yeah. That is very cool. Yeah, which is really interesting. I quite liked... Um, this is kind of not related, but semi-related. When I was in China quite a few years ago, um, we I got uh, a really bad cold in the first couple of days we were there, and so mum and dad decided we should go to the pharmacy, get some medicine. Awesome, no worries. So we went to the pharmacy, and of course, they have Chinese medicine there. So I got these pills that were, they looked like tiny little pellets. They were purple in colour, and I got told I had to take 10 a day of these oh, tiny geez. little pellets. I know, and I was like, sure. I haven't recovered from a cold so quickly. Uh, they were amazing little pellets, and so we actually bought a second pack <laughs> after they worked so well to take them back and, and used them again for another cold back in Australia. So, yeah, you know, there's amazing 
uh, elements to Chinese medicine that have chemicals in there that certainly work. Um, and this this prize was awarded to uh, to Yu Yu, um, whose name, as someone pointed out to me earlier this week, she'd be very hard to sing happy birthday to. Happy birthday to Yu Yu Yu. Yes, yes, well. that's right. It 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 just wouldn't quite work. Happy birthday to you. Anyway, um, she. Uh, she had an amazing discovery. So she was based in Beijing and assigned to a project called Project 523 by uh, Mao Zedong in 1967, looking for an effective treatment for malaria. Um, because in uh, the, the Vietnam War, the North Vietnamese troops, more lives of the North Vietnamese troops were lost to malaria than the US military, which is kind of amazing when you think about it, um, just how deadly malaria... Um, well, it still is deadly, but uh, certainly less so now. Um, and so to observe this disease firsthand, um, Tu Yu was sent to Hainan province, which is an island off the southern coast of China, leaving her four-year-old daughter in the care of a Beijing nursery. Um, and uh, on her return, Tu and her team trawled through more than 2,000 Chinese remedies uh, for clues on how to fight malaria. And they found one recipe written 1,600 years ago, which was called Emergency Prescriptions Kept Up One Sleeve. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. I, well, I, I want to carry that around with that's me. That's right. What a great title. Um, and it described how sweet wormwood uh, should be prepared in water to treat the disease. So they started there. And they worked through uh, the wormwood and um, found the active ingredient there, uh, which was a, a chemical called artemisinin. Uh, and they, they started it trying to extract it. Now, they had huge problems extracting it, but eventually to trace the problem back to boiling, uh, which destroyed the active ingredient. So denatured it, as we were talking about earlier, mm. with the, um, the Ig Nobel in... Uh, Chem. In chemistry, uh, denaturing the protein. So the boiling uh, for this process was uh, destroying the artemisinin. But when uh, Tu did it at lower temperatures, uh, she was able to get the extracts out. Uh, tests on monkeys and mice were 100% effective, so they started testing on humans in 1972 in Hainan when uh, 21 people with malaria were given these preparations. Uh, half actually had the deadliest form of malaria, uh, which is caused by the parasite Plasmodium falciparum, and the rest were infected by the more common malaria, Plasmodium vivax, and the treatments wiped out the parasites in both. Whoa! Amazing. Uh, and so... Uh, Tu led the group uh, at what was then the Chinese Academy of Traditional Medicine uh, and, as we were saying before, she tested her own medicine. She she drunk her preparations to test their toxicity uh, and huge, huge development in the world of malaria treatment. Um, and the, the really the big thing about it was that artemisinin was discovered at a time when fatalities from malaria were rocketing and the world was terrified because... Uh, Malaria had mutated to become uh, immune to quinine, uh, which was the previous treatment, um, and so it was a huge change that she was able to um, that she was able to cause through this uh, treatment. It makes you wonder what other traditional medicines could do for other things. Well, exactly. There's there's a, a fantastic case of a, an indigenous medicine um, up in uh, Derby in Western Australia. Uh, is it Derby or Derby, Kate? Derby. Derby, Derby. good. I got it right. Um, De where a, an indigenous guy had uh, his finger bitten off by a crocodile uh, and... Uh, couldn't get to uh, he was actually he was not in Derby he was out on country uh, couldn't get 
to to traditional uh, to uh, conventional doctors soon enough and so wrapped it in some herbs from a plant and I can't remember the plant offhand but basically wrapped it up uh, you know put it on there to stop infection then eventually got to the, the doctors a week or two later and the doctors were shocked they're like what's going on why is this not infected it's amazing so he told them the plant that they traditionally used for um, cuts and infections and uh, they started investigating it and found the active ingredient there which is a fantastic uh, antibacterial yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, and and who knows what we may discover that we didn't know that we didn't know because of these kinds of things where we don't know all of the traditional medicines that people used. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, cultures survived for many years before us. Our indigenous culture is a fantastic example, and they they use what they had in the world around them, uh, which is great. And it's it's how both the um, the winners of the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology, it's how both those drugs were discovered. Um, because, as we were saying, the uh, two found the chemical in wormwood, um, and then the other scientists, Omura and Campbell, uh, discovered a chemical called um, avamectin, which was found in soil samples. Uh, So the Japanese microbiologist Amura uh, studied natural product, gathering soil samples and growing bacteria uh, that produce their own antimicrobial compounds. Um, And among these strains, he isolated uh, a strain called Streptomyces avamatillus, which was actually from the boundary of a local golf course. (laughs) And it was found to be uh, particularly effective um, against uh, a form of the disease which uh, river blindness uh, and uh, lymphatic filaria... Filariasis. Oh, my gosh. I practiced these. I did. (laughs) Um, So, basically, um, the Japanese microbiologists found this uh, Streptomyces avamatillus. The work was then taken up by uh, Campbell in the US, uh, who found that this was uh, remarkably effective against parasites in domestic and farm animals. And then, eventually, they they moved this into a, a new, more potent drug called ivermectin. Uh, in tests on humans, this wiped out parasitic infections, leading to a new class of drugs against parasitic worms. Uh, the fantastic thing about this is that when this was discovered by Campbell as part of a larger team at Merck in the US, uh, the company declared that the drug would be given away for free of charge as long as it was needed. Um, and uh, Omura, the Japanese scientist, has urged all scientists to go back to nature in their search for drugs. Uh, he's quoted as saying, one of the biggest mistakes we've made all along is that there, there is a certain amount of hubris uh, is in human thinking that we can create molecules as well as nature can, which is not quite true. Nature's been doing a very good job of this for many, many years. So there we go. So that's the Nobel Prizes in the scientific areas. But we've still got five minutes to go. And we've still got a few Ig Nobel Prizes to cover too. Uh, What... Ig Nobel Prize were you going to tell us well, about, Kate? Um, there's a really great... The, the Ig Nobel Prize for medicine this year uh, was given jointly to a couple of groups, one from uh, Japan and one from Slovakia, uh, for experiments to study the biomedical benefits and consequences of intense kissing and other <laughs> intimate and interpersonal activities. Right. I feel like just needing to justify that for biomedical reasons is maybe overstating it just a little bit, but <laughs> but it's it's a bit interesting that they that they've sort of bothered to look into what um, those kind of interpersonal relationships can give us on a beneficial or risky 
uh, basis. Yeah, yeah well, I think it's found to be reasonably beneficial, hasn't it, that we can, um, uh, you know, get uh, various things from each other that uh, can help benefit both parties. Uh, yeah, exchanges of bacteria and, and those kinds of things on the sort of surface level, but yeah. down to sort of neuro um, neurological changes and releases of other um, chemicals in the brain, which yeah. have benefits for us as well. Mm. And, and in some of the papers that were produced by these researchers, one of the interesting ones was a, a, a forensic paper which looked at the prevalence and persistence of male DNA identified in mixed saliva samples after intense kissing. So basically, can we find other people's DNA in your mouth if you've been kissing a lot? The answer is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is uh, kind of interesting. And look, on the... Uh, to move from kissing to a, a slightly uh, <laughs> when two people love each other very much something else happens um, the Ig Nobel in mathematics this year uh, was uh, awarded to a couple of mathematicians from uh, Austria and Germany uh, who used mathematical techniques to determine whether and how Moulay Ismail, the bloodthirsty who was the uh, Sharifian emperor of Morocco back in uh, 1697 to 1727, he's uh, rumoured to have fathered 888 children. That's a reasonably that, that's, extended family. That's a lot. That is a lot in there. And so they, they determined whether this would have actually been mathematically possible. And the scientists worked out that theoretically, even if they made very conservative estimates, by their calculations, Moulet could have achieved this outcome. He would have just had to have uh, had intimate relations with a woman every day for 32 years without a break. Well, uh, that's one way to spend your life, that's, I suppose. Well, it, it's a possibility. It's a possibility. I feel like, you know, you know, maybe have one day off and multiple... Anyway. Well, so, know, yeah, definitely a possibility. Some people choose to sit and get stung by bees. Other people, well, choose to live their lives in other ways. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Lots of different things. And the final Ig Nobel we should talk about today, because there is an Australian uh, component to it, even even though it was the Ig Nobel Prize in Literature, it was awarded to uh, Sydney University Professor Nick Enfield, along with... uh, other researchers, Dr. Mark Dingermans and Dr. Francisco Torreira from the Max Planck Institute in the Netherlands, um, for discovering that huh, as in H-U-H, huh, is a universal word. Oh, good. So it means I can literally go anywhere, and when I don't know what's going on, I can just go, huh? That's right, and people will understand you. Um, because in linguistics, generally, there are no universal words. Words vary radically in uh, terms and how you sound. And, you know, um, for example, in Australia, we have the word dog. You know, English-speaking countries say dog. In German, it's Hund. And many people have different variations on that. So they were investigating whether people use language in the same ways and found that, huh is uh, the uh, the word that is common all over. Huh, well, there you go. So, so that's very interesting to keep into account. And, uh, you know, and, and there are a lot of applications in looking at that and uh, having having a look at uh, those findings. And, and it, look, it basically enables researchers to look at language in action uh, rather than just abstract structures of language and, and how it's going there. And... Uh, They've, they've followed up this research up with another paper uh, recently released which shows that people on average stop for clarification in conversation once every 90 seconds. Hmm. Another interesting there study there. 
So uh, anyway, that brings us just about to the end of what we have for you today here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, thanks very much for joining me in the studio, Kate. No worries. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, if you enjoyed today's show, you can download the podcast. We're on Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com or you can find us on uh, iTunes as well. Just search for Fuzzy Logic and we're the one with the little autumn leaf as our logo. The other place you can also find us is our Ask Fuzzy column, which is published in Fairfax Papers every Sunday. If you have a question that you want answered by Fuzzy Logic presenters or scientists, just email askfuzzy at zoho.com. Or, of course, you can contact us through our Facebook page there too. Thanks very much for tuning in this Sunday, and we hope to see you again next week. Same time, same place for Fuzzy Logic.